Hello and welcome to another in Argus Media's series on the China Connection. Today we're in London and we're going to be talking about China's Belt and Road Initiative. I'm David Fife, Chief Economist for Argus Media, and with me is Tom Reed, who is VP for our China Oil Service. Now, as I say, we're going to talk today about uh, the Belt and Road Initiative, or the BRI, which many see as President Xi Jinping's signature policy. It involves expenditures of anything up to $1.2 trillion in 85 countries by 2027. Tom, it sounds a, a very uh, ambitious program, and we're going to talk today a bit about where it comes from, what it means for commodities. But can you fill us in a little bit on the, the origins and the rationale for the BRI? Yeah, thanks, David. Xi Jinping came to power in 2011-12, and this is one of his very early initiatives as he was stamping his mark on the Communist Party, on China, and I guess on the world as well. And he coined these two aspects which make up the BRI, the Silk Road Economic Belt and the Maritime Silk Road during a trip to Indonesia uh, to describe policies that would really put China back at the heart of global trade, where it belonged. Uh, and today, the BRI, which celebrated its sixth anniversary last month, describes those two big axes of trade. Somewhat confusingly, the economic belt countries, uh, loosely defined, follow the old Silk Road overland trade routes via Central Asia and up into Europe. And the maritime Silk Road routes follow the sea lanes into Southeast Asia, the Indian Ocean, and up as far as the Adriatic. Uh, from China's perspective, um, enhancing the BRI trade ties provides an outlet for China's surplus manufacturing capacity and gives a means for capital-deficient countries to secure investment. It's win-win, um, as the Chinese government would say. So what's not to like? Well, I mean, I think it raised hackles almost from the off, didn't it? I think you're right. I mean, there is a certain amount of reticence amongst some of the nations within the region. And we're talking about Asia in its broadest sense, because the BRI extends into Central Asia, it's looking at Southeast Asia, it's including South Asia, and indeed East Africa. And of course, historically, there are some countries within the region who rather resent this rather more overbearing approach from China. There are territorial issues long-standing between, say, China and Japan, China and India, and also the Philippines and Vietnam. And as much as these countries may be happy to go hand in hand with China in terms of investment and accessing funding from the Chinese, there is a reticence about becoming overly dependent upon China in this project. There are another group of nations, we could name Myanmar, Sri Lanka, Malaysia perhaps, for whom it, it's more a sovereignty type issue. And they've dipped their toe in the water with BRI. Indeed, some infrastructure has indeed been built. But what they're concerned about is very much the, the terms of debt, the use of predominantly Chinese labor in a lot of these projects, and in certain cases, a lack of concern for environmental standards with some of these, these projects. So there is pushback. The US, China, Japan, but also some of the smaller countries in the region have a number of concerns about the overarching plan. Uh, absolutely. And one of the recent flashpoints we've seen, obviously, and this bears 
indirectly on China's territorial claims in the South China Sea is the flashpoint over oil exploration in uh, seas claimed by China and claimed by Vietnam. Uh, ironically enough, on the Philippine Friendship Day, a Filipino fishing boat was run aground on, I think it might even have been the Friendship Shoal. But I think from China's perspective, in hindsight, possibly this was, it was kind of misbranded from the off. And I think it, it's likely to be one of the considerations at play in the trade war. Um, it's been seen by Washington, I think, as part of a new assertive phase in China's development. And when Xi Jinping tied it to the Chinese dream, part of which, of course, was the, the great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation, warning flags went up, you know, in Washington. And now barely a day goes by without, you know, uh, some mention of the two countries' relations involving the term, you know, the Thucydides trap, the idea that one country cannot rise without uh, threatening another directly. I think that's probably not what Xi Jinping meant, um, but uh, his desire to stamp an indelible mark on Chinese politics. It's a very fraught time in the country because, of course, when he came to power in 2012, he was in the teeth of some internal opposition and he was actively battling factions that opposed his presidency. We see that in the anti-corruption Tigers and Flies campaign, where he's imprisoned a large number, hundreds, of Communist Party officials. And the BRI initiative came along at that time. So it's very much part of Xi stamping his authority on the country. And I think in some way that did end up being projected as Xi attempting to stamp his authority on the world. And I don't think that's what he was doing at all. I think it's possible that it was over-branded, you know, the, uh, the BRI. It didn't help, of course, that when he announced it, he was in Indonesia, and he name-checked a Ming Dynasty general called Zheng He, who was part of an, an, an expansionary Ming Dynasty policy. You know, he went out into the Indian Ocean to battle pirates and assert, you know, Chinese claims to those waters. So I think some of the, the semantics associated with the BRI really didn't do China and Chinese PR any kind of favours in terms of how this was viewed sure. Uh, internationally. Sure. I mean, let's turn to energy and commodity markets, because for many years, arguably ever since the late 90s, early 2000s, China has been attempting to secure supplies of commodities for its domestic market. And, you know, that policy predates the BRI. You know, if you look at the combination of the equity that uh, Chinese companies hold, overseas oil and gas reserves, combined with oil for loan deals. Arguably, China has access to not far off three and a half million barrels per day of oil supply through those means overseas, yeah. which is pretty much what they produce at home. The irony being that how has that benefited their energy security? Not tremendously. They're, they're essentially they're cut off from U.S. and Iranian oil flows. They're struggling yeah. to access Venezuelan oil flows. In Sudan, there was unrest that complicated you know, the extraction of oil there. It turns out that buying into these upstream reserves does not necessarily improve your energy security and your greater risk, as far as China's concerned, is the financial system. And yeah. Until you've yeah. internationalized the renminbi, until you've insured yourself against, you know, the dollar economy in some way, you're terribly vulnerable. And actually, the bulk of China's uh, oil produced overseas actually is, is sold into markets overseas as well. It doesn't come back to China. I think to, that's a common misconception yeah. about yeah. what China's doing yeah. overseas. You know, this so is a commercial. The, you know, BRI is not 
overwhelmingly or solely about energy and commodities. But all other things being equal, the project is about boosting intra-Asian trade, yeah. or indeed trade from Asia as far as Europe, yeah. let's face it. Yeah. And it's, it, it's yeah. also yeah. about building infrastructure. Yes. And both of those, net-net, should be pretty positive for the commodity complex. In other words, for metals, for iron and steel markets, industrial metals, mining, and indeed for oil, in as much mm. as the greater the flow of trade, that tends to be pretty positive for fuel oil and diesel, etc. So all other things being equal, it's a policy thrust that will just exacerbate the fact that Asia is the last big neck short yeah. in the petroleum market. 15 yeah. million barrels a day of net imports in 2000, 30 million barrels a day net oil imports into Asia today. And this project plays into that narrative very much. But any other areas in terms of BRA, in terms of its implications for commodity markets, do you think? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that a lot of commodity companies seized on this, the BRI initiative, as giving them justification for going overseas, but also improving their ability to tap Chinese Development Bank credit to do so. And one of the big instances where we saw that was a, a conglomerate which appeared to come out of nowhere called CEFC, snapped up an awful lot of overseas assets. They bought upstream oil fields in Abu Dhabi and Chad. Uh, at one point, they even came close to buying a pretty substantial stake in Russia's state-owned Rosneft before they went bust. And when they went bust, they sucked the main Chinese policy bank the China Development Bank, into a fairly wide-ranging corruption probe. And of course, uh, the China Development Bank, CDB, was one of the main backers of the Asian Infrastructure Bank, which was essentially created to help finance BRI projects. And it sort of made it look as though a lot of companies in China were quite cynically taking advantage of Xi's policy to export China's manufacturing surpluses and just sort of piggyback on that cheap credit. And some of that has kind of come crashing down around there. It's rather sort of tarnished the image, I think, of the BRI when things like that happen. And I think there are several areas where we can say, what has the reality of the BRI been compared to the rhetoric? And you mentioned there the handling of finance and the way that uh, I hesitate to use the word manipulated, but to some extent the project has been manipulated in that sense. Yeah to some degree. As I said, the goals are expenditures of up to 1.2 trillion, maybe about 100 billion has been spent so far. We've talked about the debt trap that certain countries in the region are concerned about. The terms of debt repayment, etc., have been troubling. And Myanmar... Another PR blow to China. All the fuss about the 99-year lease they got on the Hambantota port in exchange for this debt that Sri Lanka was never going to be able to pay back. Yeah, so there's been a little bit of a step back from some of China's neighbours in terms of their initial enthusiasm for this rather grandiose project. Lots of cheap money, lots of shiny new infrastructure. That's not to say it won't happen, it won't be built. And certain key projects are going ahead. You know, there are rail links that are being built. There are new ports that are in place. I guess one of the key problems is that this is happening just as the world heads into arguably either a concerted economic slowdown, if not outright recession. 
So what does this do in overall terms for the BRI? You, you do not want, I would think, to be borrowing short and lending long at a time of a global economic slowdown. And I think, you know, what we are now starting to see is kind of a dialing down of the BRI rhetoric. And in fact, when you look at China's spending priorities, they're domestic. It's shoring yeah. up the economy. It's the lowest growth rate in the third quarter since 1992. The IMF is predicting 5.8% growth next year, which would be even slower. And again, you know, Beijing has defaulted to propping up the domestic economy through expenditure on on infrastructure. And that, I think, probably does diminish its appetite. For a bit of impetus. Yeah. So the BRI is still there. It's still going to run. It's still yeah, a, a key policy priority for, for Xi. On the other hand, we've seen Chinese domestic imports of coal, LNG, crude oil, so yeah. far in 2019, are up by about 10% yeah. year on year. Huge. So it seems, as you say, the priority for China has become, you know, look after number one, batten down the hatches in the face of economic slowdown. So let's keep watching BRI. It's going to remain important for commodities overall, but it may not be quite the top priority that it was when uh, President Xi came in. So with that, I think we better leave it. So Tom, thank you very much. And thank you very much. Thank you everyone for listening. Listen out for the next episode in the China Connection. 